Welcome to the podcast, Seattle Real Estate with Mark Chavez, a resource for people looking to buy and sell real estate. Join me as I share my experiences, tips, and insights about buying and selling real estate in the Seattle market. For the next few minutes, I'll share real-time market stats, tips on how to become a savvy real estate consumer, and interview other real estate professionals that can help you through this process. Hi, so thank you for joining me today. It is a pleasure to have this special guest of mine that I worked with for uh, quite some time on several transactions. So Rebecca Bays, uh, she is an HOA consultant. Uh, what, what does that mean? Well, I'm going to have Rebecca, you know, uh, we're going to start talking and, and, you know, welcome to the show. And you can explain a little bit more of that as we kind of get into it. So thank you for taking the time from your busy day and uh, meeting with me and being part oh. of my show. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So, Rebecca, I, I think we've been, it's been, what, two, three years, I think, that mm-hmm. um, one of my colleagues, uh, I know in one of my office meetings, she's like, oh, I have this great person that does HOA uh, document review. And I'm like, there's such a thing. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what? Give yes. me her number. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been, you know, I've been re- sending clients, you know, your way and, uh the service that you provide is amazing. So uh, I guess let's start off in the beginning. Um, what is your background, you know, and what is an HOA consultant and how did you, how did you get here? Sure. Yeah. So it is kind of a unique little profession. Um, and I define an HOA consultant. My definition is a third party independent professional who has professional experience with construction, finance, and governing documents to some degree. And in order to advise and consult and um, educate about homeowners associations, I believe having that background is really critical. Um, And I came up, I started actually working for a demolition company. Um, Actually, prior to that, I taught high school. So that was kind of my first career was I taught high school for one year and decided that was not for me. So then I went on um, and did some other things independently, but ended up coming back to the Seattle area and went to work for a demolition company. And I started out in administration just as an admin and moved up into assistant project manager type of role. Then I went to work for a developer who was building condos and doing condo conversion projects here in Seattle. So I got to work on a new construction project, building new condos, and then we actually purchased a few apartment communities and converted them to condos. So I really got a lot of background and experience with the construction side on that from that angle. And then when RCW 6455 took effect, which was the construction defect um, statute, that kind of stopped a lot of the developer work um, for Mm. numerous reasons. Um, And when the developer I worked for slowed down and stopped doing work up here, I ended up going to work with Morris and Hirschfield, and they are building envelope consultants. So with them, yeah, we dealt with a lot of water intrusion issues. Um, And my role with that company was at first to do some business development work where I would go out and meet with homeowners associations to explain to them why our service was now required by state law. So as, an, as the architect and engineer, the building envelope consultants are the ones who do the evaluation of why is it leaking and then how do we fix it? 
So I got a lot of experience with leaky buildings and renovation projects when I worked with Morris and Hirschfield. And I was with them for about three years. I moved to Portland with them and then moved back up here after I got into banking. So after the construction defect work, <laughs> I moved into the finance world and started out with a bank where we were growing the deposit base at a time when we wanted deposits. So I was chasing a lot of the construction defect settlement checks and grew oh. the bank's deposit base with those, those accounts. Um, and then I went to work with Columbia Bank and helped write the credit policy to lend to homeowners associations. <laughs> yes. So in that role, I did a fair amount of underwriting and evaluating the homeowner association from the financial perspective in relationship to the bank's credit policy. So after a couple of years of doing that, I ended up just going out on my own as an independent consultant. And now, um, up until about a year ago, I kind of dabbled in all of those things just independently on my own. So it was quite a, quite a path to become an HOA consultant. Oh my God. I mean, that's amazing. So I knew some of that stuff. I didn't know all of it. So, so thank you so much. That You're pretty much taking, I think, every perspective that you would need to read, understand, and interpret the governing documents, the HOA documents, the, the reserve study, the mm -hmm. finances, yes. where are they projections, uh, you know, meeting minutes, all of that uh, with this incredible eclectic background. Yes. Um, it's, it sounds like it's almost impossible or very, very challenging to duplicate you. So, I mean, to have this experience, you know, and, and knowing that you worked in all these things to do this. So, Awesome. Yes. And I think it does give me a, a different perspective, you know, because a lot of us are experts in our field and homeowners associations, they're so diverse. They have different angles. There's the finance angle, the construction angle, the how do you deal with people angle, just managing people. And then the really technical legal documents, which of course I'm not an attorney, but after you read three or four or five or 600 sets of legal documents, you start to see the patterns and then you also start to see where they differ. And that's one thing I'm, I've gotten pretty good at is really dialing in, oh, this is how this one's different from the next one or the one I just looked at, or here's what's unique about this one. So I think that is a, a really valuable um, piece of my experience is having the diversity and seeing where each community is unique. You know, it was interesting as, as we were preparing for this show, uh, of course, you know, I got the background um, opportunity to see what it is that you are, how you, how you collect all this information to be able to compare, you know, apples to apples. You know, one of the things that I found very impressive was that when we were talking about this, you pulled up the spreadsheet and you're just like, okay, these are the ones that I've reviewed and here's the comparison. And it gave some great insight that I think also is in alignment with some of the stats, you know, that we were reading that, you know, that I had read and that, you know, you and I had talked about is what, you know, how many HOA, um, I guess, organizations, I guess they're called, uh, organizations across the nation are considered 
underfunded and then severely underfunded. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, I, when I read those stats, I was just like, is this true? And then after talking to you, I was like, hey, I read this. You're like, yeah, that that's pretty accurate. Yeah. So um, what are you seeing out there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, um, that trend and the discussion around percent funded, I think centers at this stage a lot around the construction cycles. So we had, you know, big construction booms in, in 80s and 90s. And those communities are starting to see the need for replacing major components. You know, the buildings last, when you hit the 40 year mark, it's time to start thinking about replacing windows, replacing siding, dealing with weather resistant barriers and whatnot with all the water intrusion issues. So I think that we're in an interesting stage of cyclical construction need. And we're seeing that a little bit with, um, well, first we went through a major renovation stage with in about 0405 or actually 0507 when RCW 6455 took effect everybody did an intrusive investigation into the building envelope to see what we have what are the conditions and that generated a significant number of rehabilitative construction projects major renovations so a lot of buildings went through those rehabs in the 0405 0607 so they're kind of on a different path, a different cycle of construction phase. Yeah. The ones that didn't go through the rehab, they're coming up due. And historically, those communities didn't put enough money into their reserve account over time for a lot of reasons. So we're seeing those come due. The, the fortunate thing is there are a number of lenders who, figure, who have figured out how to lend to HOAs. So instead of having to write a check for your special assessment amount, the association can finance those major projects and give homeowners the opportunity to pay that financing um, and that special assessment back over time. So that's really helped communities be able to do the type of work they need to do. But we are in kind of a stage of, um, of cyclical need, which of course is normal. That's what you would expect. Yeah. So I, I want to come back to this, but I think before we, 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 we come back to this and, and unpack it a little bit more, um, what's the process here? So I have a buyer who's looking to buy a, a property condo. that has an HOA. Typically, mm-hmm. it's a condominium. Mm-hmm. And we get what is called the resale certificate. And with the resale certificate, there's a series of documents that come with it. So can you explain um, what is a resale certificate and what is it that's supposed to be included and why, I guess? Sure, yeah, sure. The state law defines what is a resale certificate. And it's a little bit confusing because a resale certificate sounds like one thing when actually it's a set of statements and a set of documents. And most, time, most of the time, those statements are identified either in like a form 27, if you're using the MLS forms, or the community management companies use a third party system to produce a summary report that answers some of those statutory questions that are required. For example, one of the questions is, you have to identify um, how many owners or actually the amount of assessments that are 30 days or more past due 
owed to the association. So that has to be an answer. And there's other questions like that. There's, there's questions about warranties. There's questions about um, rights of first refusal. So in addition to answering all those questions, the resale certificate law requires the seller through the association, if they're managed, to produce governing documents, financials, uh, insurance information, reserve studies, um, and a few other pieces, actual documents. And those can be delivered to the seller in lots of different formats. For example, we can get one PDF that's 600 pages long and in there hopefully is everything that's supposed to be in there. Or we can get 32 different documents all labeled differently or incorrectly or not labeled at all. Or so duplicates. Or, or numerous copies of the same document labeled differently. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, the one thing that I do want to point out is that um, if you're buying into a condominium and depends on the type of lending that you're getting, if there is more than, I believe that the correct number is 15%, if there's more than 15% of owners who are delinquent in their dues, uh, your lender won't lend. So you can't buy it, even if you want to. So there's a few of those issues out there. Absolutely. And that became really important in the 07, 08, 09 range when we had a lot of foreclosures and when we had you know, the, the big crash. And there were a lot of delinquencies. So of course, lenders didn't want to lend into a community that was struggling because the risk was really high that they would continue to struggle. Absolutely. So in a resale certificate, it's not just a piece of paper. I mean, there is one that's actually called the resale certificate, but there's a whole packet that comes with them just like you, you just described. Um, what is important to understand I mean, you got this huge deck of documents, just like you said, it can be like hundreds of pages. Hopefully that's not the case, but it can be multiple, multiple pages and multiple documents. What are some of the important things to understand or to at least know that I should be digging into this more than this? I should be asking questions about this versus that. Sure, that's a good um good question and i try to break it up into categories so when i do a review i look at three categories kind of of, of issues um, one is the governance side so when i talk about governance i look at the governing documents to determine how does that affect the unit owner the buyer who i'm advising so i tell the buyer here's what the governing documents say are your maintenance responsibilities or your replacement responsibilities um, for example, some declarations say that owners are obligated to replace their own windows. Some declarations say owners are responsible to just replace the broken glass, and they can all be different. So when I look at the governing side and governance, that's one of the things I look for specifically are, can we clearly identify and understand what are the unit owner's responsibilities? And then what are the association's responsibilities? And that can factor into the cost of ownership pretty significantly too. Um, and that comes sometimes becomes a little more important if we're talking about something like a townhome condominium where you may be responsible for yard work or you may not be responsible for yard work. So understanding maintenance, repair and replacement responsibility is one of the key things I look for on the governance side in the governing documents. Um, secondly, I look for, are they following the governing documents? 
And that can be sometimes obvious or not. So if it's obvious, of course, I see it. Not being an attorney, I don't always see or notice or understand uh, where they may be out of compliance. But I do see sometimes contradictions. And Windows is a good example. I've seen declarations that say the association is responsible to replace the windows. And then somewhere along the line, some board president put in the rules, owners are responsible to replace windows. And that's how they're acting. So those are things I try to look for is, are they clearly, are the rules, the obligations clearly defined? And then are they following them? So that's a big one. So one of the biggest ones that I get, and I think it's, I think it's really the only question that I get is, um, is there an assessment, mm -hmm. you know, looming in the cloud? So I'm going to buy it. And then in six months or in, or in 30 days after closing, I'm going to have an assessment. Uh, tell me about that. That moves into the financial side. So that is, of course, everybody's biggest question is when or will I get a special assessment? Because that's the consistent risk with every single condominium is you don't have a choice when you pay for something. So every single condo has a risk in that you have to pay whether you want to or not, you're obligated. And yeah. the association is obligated to take care of the common elements and replace them and repair them and maintain them. So one way to evaluate the financial picture, um, it's, it's difficult, it's impossible to do independently. You can't just look at financials and understand their financial position because their financial position depends on their maintenance needs, their repair and replacement needs, their long-term needs. So that ties into, first we look at governance, who's responsible for what, then we look at their current financial position, and then we look at, well, what do they need to do in the future? And do all those things line up? And if they don't, then we dig into them and try to identify where are the problems and where are those specific risk points like special assessments. And that takes a lot of um, kind of connecting the dots is the way I, I phrase it. So I look at the governing documents and then go to the reserve study to see if they match and then look at, well, what is this association doing financially to achieve these goals that are laid out in the reserve study? So it kind of becomes a layered web of connections that you have to dig into to, to really understand it. So I'm assuming that it is much more complex to do this analysis um, when some HOAs, and I've experienced this, where there's some HOAs that do not have a reserve study. That makes it very difficult, yes. If they okay. have any reserve study ever, that's helpful. At least we have some idea of the components and the age of those components. Without a reserve study, it's definitely much more difficult to understand what's coming. Sometimes it's obvious, right? Sometimes you can look at the property and yeah. see, well, clearly the windows are aluminum framed and the roof has never been replaced. Some communities, you have no idea where they are in their cyclical need or in their future repair replacement need. So the reserve study is a definitely a key document. So let's go, let's circle back to the beginning of our, uh, of our conversation. And, you know, now that we're talking about the reserve study. So I think I've seen one HOA organization that was a hundred percent funded 
And I was just like, oh, wow. Okay, I'm like, that's great. And, but at the same time, looking at the building, it looks to be in great shape. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I have a rule of thumb where I start to express concern and I start, you know, having my clients become a little more aware and more conscious of the potential of an assessment when, you know, the, uh, the reserve study or, or the, no, the, uh, the reserves are at, I think it was like 40%, 40% or less. Okay. Um, but then, you know, there's a bunch of qualifying questions or criteria that goes along with that. So um, I'm going to have you explain, you know, what the differences are. Should you be scared or, you know, or when are the conditions were like, all right, the reserve study, the, the reserves are slow, are low. Sorry, my God, losing my tongue. So the reserves are low. Why are they low? Or they're really high. Is it a good thing, bad thing? Because they're all very unique. It, it's not just a blank statement. No. So can you elaborate a little bit more of that to kind of explain the difference? So yeah, go for it. Yes, reserve. The percent funded can be very deceiving. The percent funded I'm finding when I talk to buyers in their minds and in layman, you know, most people who don't understand reserve studies, which is most people, think when we hear percent funded, we think if it's 40% funded, we have 40% of what we need. When that's not necessarily the case, that's not what that is is intended to demonstrate. Um, Percent funded is more a depreciation type of calculation. So if a community is 40% funded, sometimes that can be good. Sometimes that can be really bad. It depends on what's coming and when. So I've seen communities that are 80% funded and doing a special assessment because something outside of that reserve fund, um, what those reserve funds are designated for shows up, something completely out of left field. So you can be very well funded, but still have something unusual come up that requires a special assessment. Ideally, and obviously, we want to be more well-funded because that's just a better risk mitigator. If you have more money in the bank, there's less risk you have to come up with money. But historically, associations haven't driven towards full funding for a number of reasons. One is if an association had fully funded themselves, say 10, 15, 20 years ago, the ratio from the lender side, when they look at the sale price of the property and the monthly dues, sometimes that reserve contribution amount would skew it to a point where they weren't financeable or it would make the property hard to lend against. So that has been a factor for some communities why they're underfunded. A lot of it is the human factor. We're humans, we don't wanna pay money for things, so let's keep the dues low. Let's not contribute to the reserve account, especially if I'm not gonna live here in 10 years, yeah. um, you know, keep it low. Why, yeah. Yep, and then there, there can be also issues with cash flow. A community that has 50 reserve items has more cash flow to draw against. A community that has 10 reserve items you have very limited opportunity to draw from those line items for other line items. Yeah. So sometimes the cash flow is a big 
factor in reserve funding. Um, communities that are really, really large can be less well-funded and never have a special assessment. But communities that are very small tend to be less funded and tend to need more special assessments just because there's fewer people paying for things. Yeah. You know, the one thing that, you know, from the buyer's perspective, uh, you know, I hear a lot of them and, you know, get excited that, yes, the HOA dues are really low or, you know, they're reading the, the, meeting, the meeting minutes and they're just like, yes, they haven't raised the HOA dues, you know, in, in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, that's a red flag because I understand that the reserve funds are a savings account for mm-hmm. future repairs. So if it's going to cost, you know, a million dollars to replace the roof today, it's going to cost a lot more than that to replace it in 20 years. So if you're not even keeping up with inflation, there's an assessment that is, you know, bound to happen. So I always tell my clients, expect to at least, or at least there should be a annual increase in your reserve funds of 3% or whatever is close to the, um, to the appreciation rate, because that's the whole point. Yes. Now, um, you know, in, 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 in doing the research and talking to you is if a property is well-funded, you know, let's just say 80%, um, against the reserves, but the repairs aren't being done. So there's a lot of, uh, uh, deferred maintenance. Deferred maintenance. Yes. That's a concern. It's like, Mm-hmm. then why are you hoarding the money? Because that's the point of the money. That's the point of putting the money in there. Mm-hmm. Now, when we go look at properties and they have a low, you know, uh, uh, reserve low res- balance. Yeah, reserve balance. Thank you. Mm-hmm. But I'm just like, yeah, they just replaced the roof, you know, on, you know, on 20 b- buildings. You know, it's like, yeah, that took a big chunk out. That's the point of the money. Yes. You know, yes. and I think one of the things that you and I talked about was also the, well, it's new construction. They just built it. You know, the likelihood of them replacing, you know, which one of the most expensive things, the roof, it's years down the line. So they have mm-hmm. time to build up. Yes. Um, what, what are some of the questions or what are some of the flat red flags that you would advise, you know, a, a, a prospective buyer to be like, ask these questions. These are the things you need to look at, or uh, here are some items that where you should be concerned, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah. I think first of all, the biggest challenge I think buyers and brokers have to overcome is understanding what is a legal resale certificate. What should you be receiving? What information should you be getting from the seller? And what should those documents be dated? And what are they supposed to tell you about? So that's the first challenge. Um, I found, I did a, a sampling. I took a hundred reviews I did last year, 2020 and found that 98% of them were illegal on the first try. What? 98%, which- That's pretty much buyer, all of them. Yes, I got two, I was like, oh my gosh, they were great. Um, and for the, from the buyer's side, obviously that's concerning, but it's equally as concerning, if not more concerning for the seller, 
because if the seller can't produce a legal resale certificate, the buyer, according to state law, has the opportunity to walk away from the transaction up until conveyance. Interesting. So it's a big deal to not have a legal resale certificate. It gives the buyer an out. Absolutely. So from a buyer's perspective, sometimes I tell them it's to your best interest to not tell them it's illegal because then you have an out if you want an out. So that's kind of an issue to begin with. Okay. Getting all the legal documentation. And there's, of course, several channels that you have to go through to get those documents. Sometimes it's the management company that can't produce it properly. Sometimes it's a timing thing where the broker or the seller don't order or order the resale certificate and then it doesn't go under contract and then the documents are outdated. So now we have to order an updated resale certificate. So sometimes that's the challenge with the with that 98% that were illegal. But I would say about 80% of them were just wrong, just missing documents or didn't include something they should not the timing things or incomplete. Okay. Mm -hmm. So then I think the buyers, the biggest thing I would point them to would be to understand the reserve study and really try to, which isn't as easy as it sounds, but that is the key document from my perspective, because that's essentially like the association's credit report. That's their obligation. This tell okay. this document says the association is obligated to spend this amount of money over the next 30 years. So if you as a buyer really understand what those obligations are and where those variables might be and how much it will really cost, then you're then you can kind of deal with everything else. That's the real key to me. That's a real brilliant way of, of putting it. Mm -hmm. uh, because it just makes sense. I mean, this is this is your trajectory of where you need to spend the money and how are you going to get there? Essentially, it's like debt in a way because they have to do it. They have to replace the roof. They can't not. I mean, they can. They can stretch it out, but they're obligated. The governing documents obligate them to do those things. So you can look at the reserve study as here's what I'm going. Here's what I'm obligated to pay for. Just like here's my debt, like a credit report. So this is a lot. I mean, it, it, you know, and we've talked about this many, many times, even as we were preparing for the show, this is a lot of information to unpack and to really understand. Um, I recently did another podcast of understanding um, how to read a reserve study. And, you know, and you alluded to that earlier when you said something comes up mm -hmm. that is not part of the reserve study that needs to be repaired and it costs a pretty penny. Mm -hmm. um, not everything can go into a line item for a reserve study because there's criteria that needs to be met. Correct. Um, so, you know, I'm not gonna get into explaining that because, you know, I, I did do the other podcast. We can listen to that, um, to understanding that. But this is a lot, it's overwhelming, especially for a first time home buyer. Um, what is the process for someone to reach out to you and, and what is it that you do for them as an HOA consultant? Sure. At this point, I work a lot through the broker. I'm, um, they tend to be my primary connection because they're the ones who know what they need. Um, and because so, you're awesome. So I do recommend you all oh, the time. I thank you. <laughs> yes, that too. <laughs> so I become, in a way, I, I act as the broker's assistant through this, pro through this phase, kind of. It's, it's a way to hand off a piece of this to an independent third-party professional outside of the transaction 
that can take that piece away from the broker's responsibility. It's outside their area of expertise, hand it off to me. So typically I get an interest, go ahead, sorry. No, I was gonna say that this, this is true because I can't legally, I can't interpret that and answer questions because that is not my expertise. I can guide them, um, but I can't really, you know, give them that information. So uh, right. you are an asset to us because we're like, okay, here's someone who is professional. This is what they do and they can interpret that. Right. Um, we can't. So yes, go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. And I, don't, and I don't advise about the purchase and sale of real estate. I'm not a realtor. So I don't have any liability on that the same way that you do. So I can interpret and, and consult um, about that, that document package. Um, so first, my first job is to help us get the complete resale certificate which usually ends up with sometimes one or two back and forth, sometimes weeks and 10 or 12s. But once we get the full resale certificate, we schedule a Zoom screen share meeting. Um, and I typically need about 24 hours to do my work. Then on that screen share meeting, I walk through the documents with the buyer. And I've also figured out a way to visually display some of the information. And you alluded to my spreadsheet. Um, I found some, some categories that are consistent in a way that I can compare communities because each homeowners association, each condominium can be managed by a different company, can produce a different type of budget. They can all do whatever they want. So there's a real lack of consistency in the data, which is challenging because buyers don't understand how is, is this good or bad? Yeah. I see these numbers. Well, how does this compare to others? So having done so many of these now, those comparisons are something that I'm finding buyers are really um, grateful for because here we can look at, let's look at a few comparable communities. Um, I did one the other day for two Ballard properties that were built about the same time, roughly. Similar size, similar scale, and we could really compare and contrast to say, here's why yours looks good. Here, let's look at one that isn't quite as good and see wow. how they compare. Um, so I find that really impactful for the buyer, um, especially as most condo buyers, I'd say about 80% of them are first home buyers. So they don't even understand, you know, let alone the homeowners association yeah. side and all these financials and documents. Um, so I'm finding that about an hour, sometimes an hour and a half, is a pretty good uh, download of everything you need to know yeah. starting here. And then whatever else they want to dig into, they can. Um, yeah. But most of them go away with a pretty good understanding of all those key points because that's what I focus on for them. Here's what's yeah. important to you about this particular community. Yeah. And I know it's been very helpful because I, you know, I've uh, I, I've been part of those conversations that you've had with uh, with some of my clients. And a lot of really great questions come up and a lot of like insights from it. It's like, oh, really? And I thought this was going to be a good deal or, okay, it's not bad. They're doing what they're doing and this is really good. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that you have some stuff that you are working on, you know, in terms of what if or when the assessment comes, I guess, is, I guess it could be right. Uh, what does that look like for me potentially? So uh, I, I mean, this is good. I mean, I know that we've just started to scratch the surface of what this really means, but I thought it would be, it was very, very important to 
explain a little bit more of what you do and to tell people there there is a professional out there who can do this and who is on your side and I mean, because you have no interest one way or the other. You're interpreting the documents and you see HOA reserve packets left and right. So you can compare like, ah, this is kind of what I'm seeing where it's good, where they're going to have assessments. And then the, one of the things that I, I think it's good to point out is that you may get an assessment report for the same property in December and then get another one in March and be like, oh, well, in December, they weren't talking about an assessment, but now something came up and the reserves uh, study it didn't include it on there. So there isn't any reserve funds for that. So now they're talking about an, an, an assessment. And I think that's something that most of us as realtors, we can't, we can't share that insight because that's not what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's really great. So uh, Rebecca, uh, what is the best way for people to reach out to you? Sure. I think email or phone call. I love talking on the phone. I, I think I do answer my phone. I feel like we can get a lot done in a quick phone call and, and you know, more efficiently than lots of back and forth emails, but either way is fine. Um, um, so phone calls are, are always great. Um, and I did want to interject too, um, back to the special assessment, just side note. Yeah. I've talked with numerous buyers about special assessments and that's always the fear. And I've found it fascinating that once they understand it and if we identify it, they're like, oh, okay, I might have a special assessment. Okay, now I know. So I'm finding that the risk that turns buyers off is the unknown risk. So if we don't know it, if we can't identify the risk, that's scary. But if we can identify it, like, yes, the risk is you might have to replace the roof in 10 years. Okay, now we know. So I find that to be one of the best things about what I'm doing is they just want to understand it. And part of the concern I had initially was I didn't want brokers to refer me and me tell buyers, here's all the problems with the communities. When in reality, what I'm finding is brokers shouldn't be scared of that because the buyers are thrilled once they understand they've already fallen in love with the property. So I find that to be really fascinating. Yeah. And I've been in situations where they, you know, they've met with you, they they review this like, uh, it's not for me. I love it, but it's not for me. Let's move on to something else. And they can sleep well at night. Mm-hmm. And then they find a community that does fit their needs, that they're exactly. happier with, and they understand it. Exactly. I like to say informed condo buyers are happy condo owners. <laughs> yes, I agree. I agree. So Rebecca, uh, if you want to you know, uh, uh, share your webpage, email address, and your phone number, all included in the show notes. So anybody listening to the podcast can just go there and just get information. But go ahead, share how sure. they can get a hold of you. Sure. My website is CICConsultingGroup.com. Stands for Common Interest Community. Um, so CICConsultingGroup.com and my email is Rebecca at CICConsultingGroup.com. My first name is spelled R-E-B-E-K-A-H. And my phone number is 425-681-3381. Well, perfect. Well, Rebecca, thank you as always. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you, for your Mark. busy schedule uh, to be on my show. Um, 
I'm sure that we're going to talk about this again because there's just so much to unpack. Yes. Um, so for my listeners, to talk about. <laughs> right? <laughs> I know you. even when we were talking about this, we're just like, what should we talk about? Like, that's too much. Not for this one. <laughs> um, but uh, listeners, thank you very much for taking the time and listening. If you like this, please like my podcast and share it with others who you think this would be beneficial. Uh, if you have questions um, or specific items that you want us to talk about, uh, please send me an email, um, send me a comment, and I can reconnect with Rebecca and we can talk about some of those items that uh, you have questions on that you want to get a little more information on because there is a lot of information. Again, thank you very much for listening in. And uh, Rebecca, always a pleasure. Thank you, Mark.